Yes, indeed, a new, uh, a new series that we kick off today, in a way. Uh, remember last week, if you were with us, I was talking about how God is doing new things. And how as we talk about these new things God's doing, it's, we have an opportunity to look to the past as, as a place where we can build faith for the present. Then as we look forward, we're anticipating new things that God is doing. And there's actually a point of clarification I, I just want to add to that. Is when we talk about new, there's, there's different aspects to that. Sometimes we look at new and we think it's kind of an either-or. It's either the old or it's the new. And that's not really the case in kind of what we're talking about here. You see, there are some things in this current season we find ourselves in and the one we're heading into that will be completely brand new. But at the same time, there's also going to be parts of the past that work their way forward in kind of a freshened-up manner. You know, one example of that is, is the worship team we had today. As Tim mentioned, we have these people who were part of a youth band in the past that are brought into the present in sort of a new fashion, in a new role, and we enjoy the ministry that they have among us. Another example is today's sermon series that we're starting off. Because this series called Stand was actually launched back on March 8th. And we got one message in. And then the COVID situation came, and we had to stop the in-person meetings, and I decided at that point to put this series on the back burner, because it just didn't feel to me like it was the right message for the time in which we found ourselves. I wanted to, to speak about these principles in this series when, when we had people gathered together in the sanctuary. So here we are today, where the old is becoming new, in a way, as we are restarting this series and restarting that first message, but in a freshened up kind of manner. So, as we do that today, we start with this series called Stand. That word stand, it is a strong, action-orientated word that is used many different ways in our lives. And it can be used different ways based upon the preposition that we put with it. I'll give you a couple examples. It can be used as a directive when we use the word, the preposition up with it. Say, stand up. It's a directive. You may use that when we come together in the sanctuary here and we're about to sing a song and we, we all stand up together. Or at the end of my message, I'll ask us to all stand up for final prayer. We also may stand up as a show of respect when an important person walks into a room. We can also stand for something, where we, we stand for our loyalties of friends or beliefs that we hold. So it can be used as a directive. It can also be used as a source of encouragement. If we use the word by with it, where we can stand by, and as you think of that, maybe your mind immediately goes to that classic song, Stand By Me, a source of encouragement. And I'm not going to sing that song for you because I would like you to stick around for the rest of the message, and that may be interfering with your ability to stay apart to sing that for you. But even as I say the title, Stand By Me, you may already be able to hear that bass line. You hear that? You probably know the lyrics of that classic song, right? When the night comes, when the land is dark, when the moon is the only light we will see, I won't be afraid. No, I won't be afraid. As long as you what? As long as you stand by me. It's a source of encouragement. You see, there's many different prepositions that we can attach to the word stand. We can stand up. We can stand by. And in this series, we're going to walk through how all of these different prepositions affect the word stand and how they can relate to our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. 
We're going to see what does it mean to stand strong, to stand against, to stand up, to stand in, and to stand amazed by the awesomeness of God. So over the next six weeks, we're going to walk through the first six chapters in the book of Daniel. And we're going to go through some amazing stories about Daniel and his friends on how they stood, how they chose to stand as examples for how we can stand as followers of Jesus Christ in the season that is ahead of us. And today, we're going to start with what I think is one of the most difficult, one of the toughest parts of the Christian life, and that being a willingness to stand out, to stand out. See, all people have these principles and values and freedoms that we identify with. They define us to some degree. We hold them sacred to who we are. And when they are threatened or, or when they are violated, we can start to feel that kind of that boiling start to happen. Something inside of us, that urge inside starts to build. And we say, somebody has to say something. Somebody has to do something. Somebody needs to take a stand. And when we feel that happen, we find ourselves in a moment of decision. We think to ourselves, well, is this serious enough? We think, am I brave enough? Do I have enough courage to stand? And if the answer to both of these is yes, then, and sometimes it is, then it's very important we ask a follow-up question. Well, in what manner? How will I stand? And that's a critical question. Because those of you who are familiar with Facebook know that the Facebook is full of Karen and Ken videos of people who took a stand for the wrong reasons quite often in the wrong way. And we do not want to be counted among them. Well, in the story of Daniel today, we see the importance of knowing when and having the courage to stand, but also sometimes even more importantly, how, how we are to stand. The example we have from Daniel is this, that Daniel had the courage to stand out for God. So God made him an outstanding example for us to follow today. Now, if you want to follow along with this passage, we can do so in Daniel chapter 1. And I encourage you to find that on your phones and your Bibles you may have with you today. And as you find that passage, if you wish to do so, let me provide some context for what's taking place in this time. Now, Daniel was a young man of Jerusalem. And he was noble of family and character. He was noble of family because he had a position of he had he possessed a position of privilege in princely pedigree. Try and say that three times fast. A position of privilege in princely pedigree. <laughs> you can try that later. He also had nobility in terms of himself personally, in terms of character, because he was a righteous man. He was a devout follower of the Lord. And, and this would have been in complete contrast to the prevailing culture of the land in which he lived at this particular time. You see, the people of Judah were in a time of rebellion against God. And God had been sending the prophets to warn them. He had been sending people to call them back into right relationship with him. He had given them chance time after time after time after time. And from the beginning, God had promised if you live faithfully according to my will and commandments and the promises we made to each other, I will bless you. But, but he also, from the beginning, said, if you abandon those things, then I will judge you. God had been faithful to bless them during times of faithfulness, but, but now, when Daniel was about 17 years old, God also needed to fulfill his promise to judge them. 
And so through the prophet Jeremiah, God's message comes to them and it says, God through Jeremiah says to them, with my great power, with my outstretched arms, I made the earth and all of its people. And I may give them to whoever I choose. And now, because of your waywardness, because of your unfaithfulness, because you didn't come back when I called you to come back, now I will give your countries to the hand of my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon became the instrument of God's judgment against the people of Judah. He pressed westward, defeating the nations of the modern-day Middle East. And he brought them in to become part of the Babylonian Empire. But he didn't destroy them. See, he would soundly defeat them. He would completely plunder them. And then he would take their existing leaders and he would set them up as little puppet kings, as as kind of vassal states and leaders who they could keep their positions as long as they did two things. Number one, as long as they agreed to do what Nebi told them to do. And second, as long as they paid them a ransom sum for their lives and position that they maintained. This is where the book of Daniel begins is in this context. As we read in Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hands, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. Now, one of the big challenges that that Nebuchadnezzar had in this rapidly expanding territory was to find reliable, capable people who could govern all of this land that he was annexing. And he came up with an ingenious strategy. And it was this, that he would identify the best of the best young men from those captured lands, and he would bring them into a program of reprogramming them to become leaders in the Babylon Empire. And so the king does just that. He orders the chief official to exile from the royal family, from the nobility of Judah, taking the most healthy, the most intelligent, the most fit, the most legit leaders that they could find and bring them into this program. And we read in verse 6 that among those who were chosen were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they get enrolled in this three-year program of enculturation where they are to become identified with the ways of the Babylonian Empire and therefore to go serve the king one day. They were taught the beauty of the Babylonian language, the the literature, the the history, the religion of this place. They were given cushy accommodations with with daily food allowances and, and, and wine directly from the king's own table, the finest of the fine. And they were fully immersed in the prevailing culture in every way. And some of them probably found it a little bit appealing. Now, I imagine when they were first taken from their homes to Babylon, it, it was very anxious for them. They, all these things that they had lost and the uncertainty of, of their lives and their future and their freedoms. But when they get landed in this rather comfortable, rather affluent program, for some it probably didn't sound that bad. Uh, kind of like reminds me of that classic story of, of Pinocchio. Remember Pinocchio who, who is running around the town and one day he gets swept up and taken off to this place called Pleasure Island. He's not so sure at first, but then he finds out he can have all the cake and all the pie and all the dill pickles he wants. And he thinks this is a great place. But there's a sinister undercurrent about it. There's a sinister undercurrent behind it all because as he's indulging in these things, as he's becoming identified with these things, the puppet Pinocchio is slowly becoming a donkey, if you remember the story. He's slowly losing his freedom to becoming a slave. 
Well, the Babylonian Empire was doing the exact same thing. They were striving to do the same thing in these people's lives. They wanted to strip them of their identity. They wanted to rob them of their dignity and to rob them of their own personal faith in the God of Judah. This is most clearly seen in verse 7, where the chief official gives them new names. To Daniel, he gives the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, he gives the name Shadrach. And to Mishael, he gives the name Meshach. To Ahaz, he gets the name Abednego. Now, in our culture, to change names is somewhat common. And there's a pretty casual attitude about it. I imagine many, many of the, of, the, of the women who are gathered here, for example, or online who have been married or are about to be married, just, they take their husband's last name. It, it's a common part of our Western tradition to, to change one's name. We even see it in other parts of our Western culture with, with celebrities and authors and athletes where they use pseudonyms. They don't use their real names. They use sort of a stage name. For example, uh, you may not know this, but Tiger Woods. Tiger is not what his mom and dad named him. His real name, his real name is Eldrick Taunt Woods. It doesn't have the same ring to it as Tiger Woods, does it? Eldrick Taunt. How about the name Chuck Norris? Brings up these ideas of strength and, and victory and has a real punch to it, literally and figuratively. It's not his real name. His real name is, is less bold, I guess. Carlos Ray is his actual name. But he goes by Chuck Norris. It's a common part of our tradition. But in the ancient Near East, your name was central to your identity. It identified you to a family. It determined the level of shame and honor you had in the public marketplace and in society. And it also could identify you with your God. And Daniel and his friends are given these new names as an effort to remove that identity from their family and their religion of origin. You see, the name Daniel, or for any Jewish name that ends in L, for that matter, is a reference to God. And when Daniel means God, the God of Judah, is my judge. And they give him the name Belshazzar which means the god of Babylon, protect his life. The name that was given to Michel, again, ends in an L, says, who is like God, who is like the god of Judah, is given to Meshach, meaning who is what Abu is, a Babylonian god. Now up to this point, Daniel and his friends have, have not taken a stand. There's no sign of resistance to this assimilation that's taking place for them. So it begs the question, where's the line? At what point are they going to start pushing back? At what point are they going to have, as I've in the past referred to it as their Popeye moment? Those of you who are old enough remember the Popeye comic strips. There's that comic of that scrappy, wise-cracking sailor who, when he sees an injustice, in particular an injustice against his beloved girlfriend, Olive, he stands up, and what does he say? He says, this is all I can stands, and I can't stands it no more. And then he pops a can of spinach that flies in the air into his mouth, sometimes through his pipe into his mouth. He gets all swole, and he goes to fight back. Daniel and his friends have been taken from their home. They've been submitted to this foreign education system. They've been given a new name, and nothing. But finally, they reach the breaking point. Finally, the scales are tipped in verse 8. Because it says, Daniel resolved. He made up his mind. He determined. He took a stand not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. 
And he asked the chief official for permission to not defile himself in this way. Now, you might be curious. What was it about this particular aspect that caused him to draw the line in the sand? Now, some people believe it was because the food he was given, the wine he was given, was in violation of kosher dietary laws, the strict laws of food regulations that the Jewish people would follow. But the problem with this is that if that was the case, and he was a devout follower of of Yahweh, so he would have known these things. He could have still had the wine, though. Maybe some people think it's because of the hospitality, that if he accepts a meal from the king, it's like he's entering into a covenant or a treaty under the king's lordship. and He didn't want to have that tight of a relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar. No, I think there's a third option. I think the problem is this. You see, this lavish food that was brought before them was part of what's referred to as the care and the feeding of the gods, where these wonderful platters of the best of the best food will be brought and offered to the idols of Babylon first. And once those idols had had their fill, which tended to not be very much because wooden idols don't tend to eat a whole lot, they would then take the food and they would bring them to the king's table. But en route, they would be dropped off for the people in this leadership training program to share in as well. And because the idols were fussy eaters, the kings tended to be a little more plump. But Daniel takes a stand. He didn't take a stand when his name is stripped. He doesn't take a stand when his honor is violated. He doesn't take a stand when his rights are removed. But when they try to turn him from his God to an allegiance with another God, it is in that moment that he says, this is all I can stand and I can't stand it no more, and he chooses to stand out. Now in our daily lives, we too must be discerning of such things. You see, there are some hills that are worth taking a stand on, but not every hill is worth dying on, and we need to be discerning to know which is which. I can think of times when uh, we're returning home from a, from a football game. We're season tick holders of the Edmonton football team, and, and sometimes you're on the bus or on the LRT, and some of the people have had a little bit too much to drink. They have a, a bit of a, a loose tongue with their comments, with their language, with, with the content of the things that they discuss rather loudly, and it makes you feel uncomfortable. Sometimes it's even offensive. In those moments, we can feel that sense of violating, I don't talk that way, I don't believe that way, I don't associate that way. You can feel something of yourself being violated, but you have the moment. Do I take a stand? Do I, do I stand out on this bus in this moment and do so? Quite often, discernment says to let that slide. Not necessarily in every case. But in other situations, for example, when the time comes to defend the sanctity of life, whether it be at the beginning or at the end of life, I believe that is worth something to take a stand for. We need to be discerning in the situations to know which and how to do so. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge how hard that is. How hard it is to stand out for God in ungodly moments. And I'm not even talking about when we stand out to advance the gospel. I'm sometimes talking about when we just stand out to hold the line. When we just will not retreat. When we think, I can't give up any territory, I'm just trying to hold the line. We all probably know it's so much easier to just go with the flow. To not make any waves. Let somebody else deal with that. Like, would it really been that big of a deal if Daniel had just had some of the food? If he just had a couple of pieces. 
You know, we have these same questions and temptations that seek into our minds at these moments. And sometimes we allow fear to rule the day when we have those moments where we think we should take a stand. We allow fear to rule the day. Well, if I stand out, everyone's going to look at me. If I stand out, I'm going to get labeled as, as that religious guy or, or that intolerant bigot. Other times we struggle to stand out because of a struggle with FOMO. Who knows what FOMO is? It's common in our society today. The fear of missing out. Well, if I take a stand, what if it ends up not being that bad in the end? And I've been excluded and then I miss out. Other times we hesitate because we minimize perhaps the impact, the difference that we can make. No one's going to listen to me. No one cares what I think. What difference could little old me make? You see, not every issue and not every time requires us to stand out. We need to be discerning in that. But sometimes we do. And Daniel could not let this slide. And so when the time came to stand out, he pushed past the fear. He pushed past the FOMO. He did not allow the idea of minimization to rule him. And instead, he took a stand. And Daniel became an outstanding example of how to stand out for God. But as we continue looking at this example, just as important as what he took a stand for is how he chose to stand. See, if you turn on your TV this afternoon, especially tonight in the evening news, there's a very good chance you're going to see examples of people around the world, and particularly in the USA, who are taking a stand. They're taking a stand often through riots, through rallies, through barricades, through conflict. Cities around the world where at one time what was a peaceful stance that was being taken is now dominated by violence and crime. And their examples are loud and public and disruptive. But that's not the example that Daniel sets. And I don't think that's the outstanding example that he sets for us. And yet his stance was clear, it was bold, but it was very different. Because he didn't take a hunger strike. He didn't lead a rebellion in the training school. Instead, he led by example. An example where he practically demonstrated that faith in God's ways is the best way. And he quietly approached the chief official and he asked him permission to not participate in this program. And he said to him, he said, please test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearances to those of the young men who have the royal food. And, and, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. And so this chief official agreed to test them in this manner for 10 days. You see, the reason I believe Daniel chose to stand out in the right way is because of this. Number one, it honors those who are in authority above him. Which is a biblical principle we need to be aware of. That we are to honor those, in most cases, of those who have authority above us. Even when we don't fully agree with them. But also, practically speaking, it allowed him to stay in the game. It allowed him to continue to have influence. You see, if, if he had protested, if he had led a rebellion, if he had done those sorts of things, they would have kicked him out of the program at minimum. They would have thrown him in jail, highly likely. They probably could have even executed him. And then what? But secondly, I believe it was the right way to stand because it honored the situation that God had placed him in. 
God had not been foiled or, or put in a situation where he was stymied by the fact that Nebuchadnezzar showed up one day. As we read at the very beginning, God used Nebuchadnezzar as his instrument of judgment. God was in control of this whole thing. And so he was also honoring God and the situation God had placed him in by the way that he took a stand. He didn't kick up a fuss. How could he? God had put him in this place. And so he demonstrated faith in God. He demonstrated that he believed God was still at work, even in the midst of this uncertain, difficult, trying time. And he believed that God would continue to work through him. You know what? And the proof was in the pudding. Not that they were allowed to eat pudding, but the proof was in the pudding. Because at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the other young men who ate the food from the royal plate. And so the guard took away their choice food and their wine, and he gave them vegetables instead. So the moral of the story is that mom was right. Vegetables are good for you. So this whole message, isn't that what it's about? We're just working towards that for the moms. Don't protest your broccoli. Eat your broccoli. No, that's not what we're it's true. It's true. We need to eat a broccoli. But the point is different than that. The point is this. The point is that you can stand out for the right things in the wrong way. The way you choose to stand out for God is just as important as what you are standing for. And when your head tells you it is time to stand, ensure that your hands are aligned in the manner in which you stand. Otherwise, not only will you send a mixed message to the world around you, but you will move the conflict outside of you that caused you to stand. You'll move that conflict from external to in your heart. Because I don't believe it will be in line with how God wants us to stand. And we can see this actually in Matthew chapter 10. When Jesus spoke about this, as he was about to send his disciples out to minister among the people, and he was concerned about their safety, he was concerned what they would encounter, but also about their ability to boldly, truly, accurately maintain the message of the good news of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. So he tells them in verse 16 of Matthew 10, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. See, Jesus knew they would find themselves in the midst of conflicting cultures. Sheep who live among wolves, feel tension. I think we can understand that. Sheep who live among wolves feel tension. And so they need to be shrewd. It means they need to be wise and they need to be alert. They need to clearly discern when and how to act to avoid danger. But they also need to be innocent and to not lose their innocence in the midst of that. Because when they act in innocence, it allows them to continue to faithfully witness to who the true God is. Not just in words, but in action as well. Does that describe Daniel? I believe it does. Where he maintained his innocence, where he didn't try to mount an angry assault or, or, or rule the, the, the place that they were being trained in. He acted civilly. Was he shrewd? Absolutely. He chose to stand out. And he did so without being chased out. In fact, the exact opposite happened because as he excelled in his leadership training school, at the end of the three years, we're told that he was brought before King Nebuchadnezzar and he stood out from the rest. See, King found none equal to Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And so they entered into the king's service 
And in every matter of wisdom and of understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them to be ten times better than anybody else. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to see how this positioned Daniel to have influence for the things of God for decades to come. How through him, kings would come to know about the one true God. About how through him, people would surrender their lives to the Lord. You see, Daniel, I believe, is an outstanding example of how to stand for God. He showed us that how we stand is just as important as what we stand out for. And ladies and gentlemen, in a few moments, we're going to head into the world. Where the prevailing culture, where the customs are quite often in conflict with the will of God. And when this conflict happens, when this tension emerges between these two people groups. At times, the church historically has chosen to withdraw. It has chosen to separate itself and to hide from the world. But by doing so, what is the outcome? They remove their voices. The church removes its influence of God's truth from the people who need to hear it the most. At other times in history, the church has chosen to push back, but it's done so in ways that it causes disruption and, and anger in the name of Jesus. And they end up being excluded from the conversation, seen as an invalid option. And either way, whether it's fight or flight, the end result in those situations at those two extremes is that the secular world gets more secular and the divide gets broader. But I think the words of Jesus are helpful for us to remember in these moments. You see, he said in John 17, a bit of a paraphrase of this section, he says, be in the world, but not of the world. And by that command in itself, we know that the flight option is not possible because that means we wouldn't be in the world. We can't just sit back. We, we can't just check out. We can't just avoid. And verse 21 gives us the reason why. It gives us the reason why the presence of his followers are so important in the world. It's so that the world may believe. To those who may be here with us today, who may be watching online, if you have experienced a poor example of the followers of Jesus in the past, who, who have maybe stood for the wrong things in the wrong way, or sometimes even the right things in the wrong way, and it's caused a negative experience, and it's caused wounds, and I can tell you the world is full of these types of people. I'm sorry for your experience in that. I want to suggest to you that the words and the actions that you encountered may not truly reflect the heart and the will of Jesus Christ. That there may be a new, truer encounter available to you of the Jesus revealed in Scripture. I will encourage you, if you find yourself there, to give him another opportunity to see his love for you, to see his grace that can cover and deal with your failures and sins, and to see the truth that can lead you to find life in a new way. And then for those of us who are gathered here today, who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are striving like Daniel to be the faithful, devoted followers, who live according to his will and his ways the best we can, and we, we stumble sometimes. We make mistakes along the way, but we're, we're quick to pick ourselves up and to pick up our brothers and sisters and to confess those things to continue to press on. For those of us who find ourselves in those situations, I have two questions for you as we close today. Number one, where may God be calling you to take a stand for him? 
Where do you feel that tension in some area or situation in your life? Maybe you've encountered it and it's been going on for a while and you just, fear has ruled. FOMO has ruled. You've allowed yourself to feel minimized in the situation. Is there an area where you need to take that stand? It's possible there's a moment coming up later this day or this week where you will find yourself in this situation. But I've got to ask you the follow-up question. Are you willing to follow the example of Daniel? Not only to take a stand in purpose, but in manner. So that our words and our actions will be unified in our honor of who God truly is and the message that he has for the world around us so that they may believe. So that when you stand out for the things of God, you would do so as an outstanding example of the grace, the truth, and the love of Jesus Christ. And with that challenge, I invite you to stand with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would see fit to not only send your Son to the world to give his life for people such as us, that we may be forgiven of our sins, that we may be set free from the bondage of sin and death and know forgiveness, freedom, and life. But Lord, we're also thankful that you would see fit to look at those such as us and use us as your instruments, as your examples of the good news of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that those who don't know you this day and and something has tweaked within them in these past few moments, that, that they would raise their hands and make themselves known that, yes, I need Jesus in my life. That they would take that step of faith and continue a new life, a new walk with you this day. But I pray for the rest of us as well, Lord, that as we go out into the world, into a world that is sometimes, very often, of a different worldview, of different convictions, of different values, that we would know how to stand for the things of Christ in a way that honors and glorifies Christ. That in the end, your kingdom would be grown. Your name would be advanced. And we could celebrate and give you all glory for the goodness of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.